Our scripture reading this morning can be found in Psalm 69, verses 1 through 16. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled, my soul was fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, and it at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundance Mercy turned to me. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, thank you for encouraging my soul with the reminder from the word. Um, it's, it's a privilege to be up here. It's, it's a humbling thing to open the word and to invite the Lord to speak to us through it as uh, Bobby was reading, I just was reminded of something that was on the news this past week, and, and the whole trip with the hurricane just kind of prompted in my brain. Did you see this story on the news? And it's not uncommon that some guy was out using a commercial lawnmower, and the mower flipped over and pinned him down in a ditch of water. Did you guys see this somewhere this past week? And the image was remarkable because the, the footage showed the, the mower upside down and these guys running to rescue this guy who was pinned down in the water. And, and they're trying to flip over the mower and finally they're able to lift up the side of the mower just enough to get him out. And all the while they're lifting the mower, there's these guys that are holding his head up out of the water so that he wouldn't drown. And um, they get him up, he seems like he's okay. And as he stands, it's only like 10 inches of water. You know, but 
sometimes with water, and we see this in hurricanes, the floods that wash over uh, destroy everything in its wake. But also people drown in just a few inches, not because of the depth of the water, but because of this thing that is pushing them down. In Psalm 69, we see this story of, of the weight that David's feeling in the midst of suffering. So in Psalm 68, we learned about the character of God, about our loving Father who cares and protects his people, and not just his people, but all those who will come to know him and worship him as Lord. And this week in Psalm 69, we see that despite his presence and despite his care, that the people of God, the people that God still loves, they suffer. And many will suffer because they love and follow God. And that's the story of David in this psalm. So what does God want us to learn? What does he want us to know and learn from this psalm? There's three things I think I want, I'm hoping that you'll see that uh, uh, the Lord encouraged me with um, this week as I studied and prepared. Um, the first is that suffering is a part of life in a broken world. Suffering is part of life in a world broken by sin. Christians are not immune from that suffering. Uh, and in fact, we may suffer uniquely as followers of Jesus. Uh, secondly, uh, Jesus not only identifies with us in our suffering, but he took the righteous wrath that was meant for us on the cross so that our suffering would not be eternal, but instead that through suffering we would be redeemed. And third, we can face suffering with hope because Christ has gone before us and death is not the end. For Christians, suffering and tragedy is never the end. The final word is always victory and praise. And hopefully we'll see that uh, in this psalm. Uh, this is a prayer of lament. We've been through a number of these this summer. Uh, laments are prayers of those who turn to God in the midst of suffering. And rather than turning inward in a moment of crises, they look up. They offer their sorrows and their questions to God so that even in the midst of suffering, their worldview is one that understands that somehow God is aware and that he's at work in this horrible situation. First, um, as I said, we want to see in this psalm that suffering is part of life in a broken world. I want to lay, lay out the, the psalm in this text fairly quickly. We see first that David describes he describes his situation in verses one through three. He offers this prayer, this healthy cry of lament to God for his suffering. He, he states that he has enemies that are persecuting him and that they hate him without cause. And he's pleading for help and feels that his prayers have gone unanswered. There's such vivid language in verses one through three. Uh, language of drowning, of floodwaters that are about to roll over his head, of of his inability to get his footing, that he's up to his neck in these floodwaters. Metaphorically speaking, David's talking about the oppression, the attack that's coming against him. And in this prayer, we see in verse four that he begins to talk about what the crisis actually is. He says in verse four that there are enemies that are coming against him that are more numerous than the hairs on his head and that they hate him without cause. 
Uh, We'll see a little bit later in his prayer that he does define what it is that is causing their hate. But maybe a better way to see this is that they don't have a good reason to hate him. There's not a legitimate reason why they should come against him or be uh, angry uh, or oppose him. As we pray to the Lord, as we offer our concerns and our cares to the Lord, we see modeled in David's prayer that over time as we pray, our prayers turn from ourselves towards others. Immediately you'll see here in verse five that, that David opens himself up to God's inspection. Even as he's concerned of, of this weight of things that are happening, he says, oh God, you know my folly. You know the wrongs that I've done. They are not hidden from you. David is not saying purely that, hey God, I don't deserve this. He doesn't say, Lord, I've not done anything that people should be angry with me. Uh, In fact, he is willing to own up to the fact that he has had folly in his life, that he has done wrong, that he has sinned. Uh, But he's willing to say to the Lord, Father, in the midst of this circumstance and in this situation, I don't think that's what's happening is a result of sin in my life. But I'm willing to trust you in that. Uh, He then moves from there to say that he's concerned about others. Whatever the crises was that he found himself in, the the consequences and ripples effect of those that were coming against David, he was concerned that it might impact others. You see that he says, Lord, in verse six, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. I had a note in my Bible from many years ago in this psalm, and as I was looking back through it, it said, Lord, don't let me do anything that might bring dishonor to your name or shame to others. David is owning up to the reality that he doesn't think this is his fault, and yet he's concerned that the name of the Lord might be harmed because people are coming against him, because of his connection to the Lord, because of his his stated faith that he follows God. And he gets to that, in the next section which is so important because David finally nails down what it is that is causing this reproach, what it is that's bringing scorn against him. He says in seven through nine, for it is for your sake that I've borne reproach. It's for your sake that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my sons. And listen to verse nine, he says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David is suffering persecution. He is facing mocking and scorning and the abuse of others because he has a zeal for the Lord. He is consumed with following and living for God. And that's causing some opposition. This is coming from people who were part of the house of Israel, who knew God, who followed God. They had a theocentric, fancy word, theocentric view of the world in which God was ruler and Lord, and he had laws set before them that they were to follow. So they knew the God that David honored and lived for, and yet, to some degree, they found his level of obedience something to be scorned and to be mocked. The term about 15 years ago was Jesus freak, Uh, that was penned by DC Talk, this idea that someone might follow Christ to the point that they would be seemed to be odd or strange. Uh, 
David happily took on that mantra. He had a zeal for the house of God. David was an intense guy. Everything he did, it seemed like he was passionate about. And this zeal for the Lord is something that it seemed like God was kindling at an early age. If you remember in 1 Samuel 17, uh, that David goes to the camp and sees Goliath taunting the armies of Israel. Do you remember that story? And he comes up on the scene, a young boy with these veteran soldiers all around him. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He was offended that Goliath profaned God and his people. He had a zeal for God that was being kindled. David famously danced before the ark as it was brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He was all in. Uh, it seems that no matter what David did, he never did it halfway. And even in, in that situation, as uh, the ark of the Lord with triumph was brought finally into the city of Zion, that even there he faced the mocking and the scorn of his own family, of his wife, who thought he was acting a little bit unbecoming for a king to be dancing with such joy before the people. Uh, David had a zeal for the Lord, and it caused consequences in his life. Um, verses 10 through 12, notice that um, in his mourning, in his fasting, um, it says that it became a reproach. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, grieving over the situation he found himself in, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. They made fun of him, and his name was associated uh, wrongly with religious, uh, to be a religious zealot. Um, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So the leaders sitting at the gate found David's behavior off-putting. He was a little bit too uh, gung-ho about following the Lord. And drunkards, the, the situation had gotten so bad that even people in a drunken state were making up songs to mock him, to make fun of him. When you're in a position of leadership, you become a target. And what you do affects a lot of people, and it says a lot about what you believe, rightly or wrongly. David had staked his case, made his confession to follow God, and he suffered for it. And yet notice in 13, he says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. So that David renews his trust in God's loving kindness and even prays for deliverance. He trusts in God, the covenant-keeping God, who would be faithful to his promise. I want to touch briefly on verses 20 through 28, where uh, a section that we didn't read, but David prays that God would bring justice to those who practice injustice. He entrusts his enemies to the Lord, but he rightly asks that God would allow them to suffer in the like manner to that of those that they've afflicted that their own tables would become snares, uh, that when they are at peace, let it become a trap, uh, that their eyes would be darkened so they can't see, that their loins would tremble continuously. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them, he says in verse 24. David's zeal for God's righteousness leads him to pray that God would seek to bring justice on those who dishonor him, who dishonor the people of God, those who dishonored God's leaders. And then back in 30, ultimately he trusts the situation of the Lord and he returns to praise him. 
It says, I will praise the name of the Lord with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. You see, Christian suffering should always return us to praise. Uh, I was reminded this week that many of our great hymns of faith were born out of suffering. Many of the songs that you love and as you think about that call to mind uh, come out of places where someone has suffered loss or in the midst of trial have penned words that stirred their souls and have spoken to you. Most famously, it, it might be, it is well with my soul. Many hymns like that are born out of the suffering of those who follow Christ. We want to see, though, how Jesus' suffering is identified in this psalm. Uh, first, we've seen that suffering is part of the human condition, but secondly, that Jesus identifies with us in suffering. It's interesting um, how the apostles, in thinking back about Jesus' ministry, many times came to this psalm. Jesus quotes verse 4 of this psalm when he says about the Jewish leaders that they hated him without cause in John 15 25 when Jesus turned over the money money changers tables at the temple in John 2 John said that his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for the for your house will consume me John 2 17 Jesus was consumed by zeal for his father and his father's mission Jesus prayed in a way that was very similar to David in this psalm. There are many places in, in Jesus' ministry where he prayed in sorrow and sadness. We think of uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where in Matthew 26 he prays three times for God to remove this burden that he was under. On the cross, Jesus prayed out of Psalm 22, My God, why have you forsaken me? In Hebrews 5, the writer says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, was, to him who was able to save him from death. Uh, Jesus could identify with our suffering. And, it really, and the apostles certainly recognized this. Luke records that Jesus on his last trek to Jerusalem, even knowing that it would bring about his death, that he, he faced Jerusalem with his eyes fixed, knowing that this road would end in death, but zealous to fulfill God's mission. Jesus suffered death on a cross, and it brought to mind verses from this psalm uh, that David used in verse 21. David was thinking back about how his enemies, metaphorically speaking, uh, treated him in a very inhospitable way. Um, it says here in 21, uh, they gave me poison or gall for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink scorn leaves a bitter taste in the mouth of the person it's given to but Jesus on the cross was given sour wine to drink he literally faced the things that David metaphorically was speaking about in terms of suffering the Bible tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was mocked and hated by the Pharisees. Uh, even his own family did not believe in him, we see in John 7, 25. They rejected his ministry. People of his own hometown of Capernaum rejected him and did not believe that he was the Messiah. He escaped death, the plots of the Pharisees that came against him. He was arrested and tried for crimes he did not commit with false witnesses to legitimize their charges. And crowds that jeered them on as his life was scurred away by Roman soldiers. Jesus bore a lifetime 
of insults for God and for our sake. He was zealous for the Lord. Now this is where the crucifixion narrative and David's prayer kind of diverge because while Jesus could have defiantly hurled curses at his executioners, Jesus said very little on the cross. But among the things that Jesus prayed was forgiveness for his executioners. Father, he prayed, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. As I just read a moment ago, David's zeal for God and for his glory was so strong that he asked the Lord to bring down justice on those who falsely accused him and dishonored the Lord with their words. But Jesus prays for his enemies and he never defends himself. Is he less zealous than David? Well, of course not. Jesus was perfect in his zeal. Jesus' zeal for God drove him to perfectly obey his father and his father's mission to rescue and redeem rebels and scoffers. And so the wrath that was meant for them fell fully on Christ. The indignation and burning anger of the Lord was placed on the innocent one, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. He died so that we could live. He was charged guilty so that we could be acquitted. His blood was shed so that ours would be made clean. And he rose from the dead so that death would no longer have a hold on us, so that we would one day be like him, so that one day we would gather with saints from every time and place and feast around the table of the king in the house of Zion. This, this is the glorious gospel. This is the truth that we believe and we stake our life on. This is the reality that is more real than what you and I can see. This gospel fuels the hope that helps us weather the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt go through us and our sails are torn, Jesus is identified with us in our suffering. In fact, he suffered on our behalf so that our suffering would not be eternal, but through suffering we would be redeemed so how do we think about this psalm today? Well, we face suffering with hope. Like David, we should cry out to God when hardship or suffering occur. We have a Father in heaven who loves us and who knows our suffering. When we lift prayers of lament to God, uh, it's an outworking of our faith in the midst of pain. One writer has said that lament is the language of people who believe in God's sovereignty but live in a world of tragedy. We cry out to God because we believe that he's there. We voice our sorrow because we know that he cares. Suffering is very real. We would not want to ever belittle or make light of suffering. A loved one who has Alzheimer's and no longer recognizes who you are. A mother permanently crippled by a drunk driver. A child killed by a random bullet in a drive-by shooting. Disease, violence, poverty, racism, sexual exploitation. These are, these are the aftershocks of the fall that continue to impact both Christians and non-Christians alike. We all suffer under this weight of a broken world in which we live. I think 
For many Christians in the West, suffering for the cause of Christ is, is really more of an idea than a reality. We may suffer hardship and difficulty every day, but rarely, I think, is it because of our faith. But if we're truly followers of Christ, then, then when we face opposition, and we will, even as he did, we face it because our actions and our words are offensive to those who believe in God as Father or in Jesus as the only Savior of the world. That's what it means to be opposed. So a couple of things to notice and remember in suffering for the sake of, uh, for suffering this way. The word tells us that we will suffer for the cause of Christ. In Matthew 5, early in Jesus' ministry, uh, he warns his followers about the opposition that would come. In Matthew 5, 10 and 11, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And for those who thought maybe he simply meant uh, they might be persecuted for right living, he says in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Being associated with Jesus is a risky thing. It was then and it is now. Uh, Second, we're reminded that we'll be hated because Jesus was hated. In John 15, as Jesus has this last time with his disciples and preparing them for his death and what is to come, in John 15 he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Every letter that the apostles wrote to the church includes language, it seems like, to encourage them to persevere in hardship, to bear up under suffering, even as Paul and and others did for the sake of the gospel. Zeal for our lords will change people. The disciples had seen Jesus die on a cross and experienced and saw him face to face after the resurrection. And in the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were empowered to do something that they were afraid to do before, which was to boldly confess their faith, to preach the gospel, to let others know that Jesus was not dead, but that he had risen and that he had ascended. Peter and John in Acts 4 uh, were threatened that if they kept spreading the stories of Jesus, they would be punished, and they said, we can't help ourselves. Stephen refused to back down when the Pharisees threatened his life for proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and he was stoned for that act in Acts chapter 7. Paul, who was there when Stephen was stoned, was radically changed by Christ, And in Lystra, we see that he was stoned by the crowds and left for dead, but that the Lord revived him and that he walked right back into that city and preached the gospel. His whole life was marked by suffering for Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And down in 14, he says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and glory rests upon you. But then he says this next, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. 
Because I think at times we may think we're suffering for Christ when really we're suffering because we're bad neighbors. It may not be our faith that uh, makes our, anger, our neighbor angry at us. I think sometimes the sources of conflict in my own life are because of my own self-righteous attitude more than how I point others to a righteous Savior. And in a world where there are so many good things to be passionate about, why does the glory of God not stir our souls? If you're gonna face rejection, let it be because you identify with the Savior, because you recognize that there is no good in yourself and it was the suffering of Christ on your behalf that has redeemed you and saved you and given you new life. See, Christians around the world face persecution every day. And it's so easy in our culture to be concerned and worried about suffering, but I think, I think we set our sights too low. I think we need to be captivated. I need to be captivated by a renewed vision for the glory of God. That in the midst of all the hardship around us that we face, it is the same hardship and suffering that, uh, that our neighbors face, that unbelievers face, that we would seek to let our lives be lived for something much higher and much greater. So that if we are suffering, it would be because of the opposition that comes because we stake clearly and loudly in our words and in our actions that we follow a Savior who died and who was raised and who is the only way that we can be saved. It's an exclusive faith. So how do we bear up? How do we bear up? Well, like David, praise we praise and worship God in the midst of suffering. We worship him. Every time we gather as believers who follow Christ, we have that opportunity to worship and give praise to God regardless of what our week has been like. Because in this world, you will face opposition. We can also bear up because there's a community of faith that you gather with who is also suffering. When we gather together, whether it's in this auditorium or on Zoom, uh, in a small community group, there are people who are suffering in the same ways that you are and who can pray for you and who can bear your burdens, who can be there for you and you with them in the midst of any opposition that we might face. We can bear up because we have a Savior who has suffered on our behalf and he will not let us go. Let me read Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely it holds us back. Now let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, our eyes fixed on Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a joy that is to come on the other side of suffering. For the Christian, suffering and tragedy is never the end. The final word is always victory and praise. Let's pray.
Father, we confess that we are so quick to grumble and complain when things don't go our way. At the least little inconvenience, Father, we are quick to feel sorry for ourselves. And we confess there's times where we may even see the, the struggles that we have the day to day as somehow marks that we bear as followers of Christ and yet our lives and most of the things in them day to day are so far from what it means to truly suffer for the sake of the gospel. Father, we're thankful that Christ has suffered and been tempted in every way as we have been and yet without sin. And we're thankful that he can identify with our suffering and he suffered on our behalf so that any suffering that we go through is not permanent. But Lord, I pray that you would help us today, that we would be captivated by a renewed sense of your glory, that we would fix our eyes on that which you've called us to, to follow our Savior, to with joy put our lives at a place where others might oppose us for the sake of the gospel. Lord, may we confess like Paul that our lives are now controlled by Christ, that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who our sake died and was raised. Let this be our story. Let this be our song today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.